Right. So uh, I am at. Uh, the, is there a guest this week? There's there's no I, guest this week. No guest. Okay. Uh, because right, I am out of town. I. I'm. Yeah. It's, it's very romantic. Just I'm you and I. Of, right, and we don't even have the chat room as usual. Uh, I mean, they're there, but they can't hear us. So they're very. It's almost like being deaf and I'm blind. They can't see us either. I'm at. Uh, I'm at a, a conference called TechCrunch Disrupt, which is being held in San Francisco, um, and I'm here in order to launch a new product on behalf of Fog Creek, and I'm not allowed to talk about it yet because the live stream might accidentally go on at the last minute. I see. Although, of course, uh, in about an hour, we're going to go on stage and, and launch a launch a thing. Um, this morning, we had Ashton Kutcher. We had the mayor of San Francisco. Um, we had a lot of VCs. I don't know, man. Most VCs creep me out. <laughs> uh, sorry, I have a little bit of cold. Don't make me laugh. Um, uh, one of the VCs, there was a VC who, who said the following sentence. He's like, you know, if you're a super successful founder and you've had three big exits and you're based in New York, but then you come out to Silicon Valley and try to start a company, you have to start all over again. You won't know anybody or have any connections. And as a New York-based startup founder, that was just BS. That was just baloney and completely false. I probably have just as many connections here as I do in New York. I mean, I think there's a lot anyway. of anyway. There's a lot of favoritism around where you happen to be. Like somebody, yeah, there was. I was reading Graham Cohen, the BitTorrent guy, was saying that he went on stage somewhere and said that if you're not in San Francisco, you're you're not getting the best engineers in the world. Ha! <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> look know. At the front, look I at mean, the front. Look at the I, users I, page. Stackoverflow.com. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah, that, I don't really understand that attitude. I mean, I, I'm thinking twenty, thirty years nobody, out, location is going to stop mattering for a lot of stuff. It already kind of does, and matter that much. This, I mean, it, it matters a tiny bit, but the homepage of Stack Overflow has uh, uh, the, like the, the number one users. It's like nobody from the Bay Area. Nobody. It, it's just bizarre how people like just look around them and they sort of assume they're like they've never been to other places. I guess I don't know why they how they get so conceited about their hometown. In the Bay Area. But, you know, one thing that I have a hard time reconciling is, and you've been a fan of having, you know, a nice workspace, which I agree with totally. And this idea yeah. that, you know, this whole sitting down to lunch thing. Um, so there's yeah. certainly advantages to locality. I'm not really proposing it's, uh, it's, that, you know, nobody ever yeah. goes to work anymore. Mostly my argument is, is if you want the best people in the world, you have to hire from the world. I mean, I don't know. I just have a hard time reconciling those two positions. I, I agree with both of them, actually. Uh, yeah, but it, it's tough. And to me, like, if I had to give a choice between having a really nice workspace and sitting down to lunch with people, or working with like the best people in the world, I got to go with working with the best people in the world. I mean, yeah, if you can't have it both ways, you know. Yeah, I don't know. You I can, mean, um, either way is good. Yeah, both ways work, and companies do it both ways. It's not that many companies that really have as much of a distributed team as Stack Overflow. I mean. There are open source projects that work that way. Um, there's WordPress, which is a company, but it's really like an open source project that works that way. Uh, but I don't know of that many other companies that are quite as distributed as we are. There are, I mean, they obviously exist. It's just kind of, kind of unusual. I mean, we're next to um, the, the Disrupt, Con Disrupt Conference here is next to a gigantic building which has all the Zynga engineers in it. Everybody from Twitter is in San Francisco. Um, Google just that does sort of a combination where they open an office in every single city they can think of and hires a bunch of people there who then end up working remotely with their teams 
you know, using the same video conferencing that they have an office to go into in their city. Yeah, that's good if you can get, like, critical mass. I guess if you're hiring lots and lots of people. At the point when you're hiring, you know, thousands of people, right. then that's then probably can, easier that's to accomplish because you're going to get, you know, groupings that are somewhat natural. And, and like I said, yeah. I don't oppose any of that. I just, you know, I don't think we've gotten to that scale. I would be very scared if we're at the point where we have, you know, 100 engineers. <laughs> Still don't have um, another person in the Bay Area, do we? No, we don't have anybody so, else yeah. in the Bay Area even, which is funny. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to be honest, like, Twitter, I remember reading at one point that Twitter had, like, 30 employees. This was, like, two years ago. And I was like, what do they all do? <laughs> you know, now it makes <laughs> now more sense because Twitter's, like, doing more stuff and they're bigger. But back then I was like, wow, that's a lot of people. Um, and I know Facebook have, is always uh, bragging about their ratio of uh, users to engineers. Apparently right. it's really high. Like, they have, like, it's very interesting. for every software engineer, they have, like, you know, I don't know, 100,000 users or something like that. Which is why we see um, their their tech support email sort of spills over, through, leaks through every possible leakage. Have we talked about that in the podcast about how we get their we get tech no. support email from? from we, sh- we should mention that. The funny thing is, since we started uh, doing the Facebook Stack Exchange or excuse me, Facebook Stack Overflow thing, uh, yeah. we get a significant percentage, and by significant, I don't mean tons, but like, I don't know, six or seven or ten per day of just random Facebook yeah. support emails. Even though, you know, yeah. we've been over backwards to be very clear that, you know, I don't know who would go to Facebook.stackoverflow and think, this is a good place to ask my question about my deceased relative's Facebook account. Um, it's just like the one billion people, it's the same people that buy, that click on the spam links, right? It just takes one in a million people who are just not using their computer correctly for whatever reason. Uh, it, it was funny, there was a Google yeah. blog post a couple, couple of weeks ago, I don't even remember what it was, but Google was announcing some new thing and I read the Google blog post on the Google blog announcing the new thing that they were announcing, whatever the hell it was. And then at the bottom there's a little comments because it's a blog. And the first comment is, I, I went to this webpage which I found in Google and I bought something and they never shipped it to me. That page should be banned from the Google results. And there was a very frustrated person. And apparently, the Google comments on the Google blog post has this brilliant thing that they've tried to prevent you from typing things that look like URLs. So this person had figured out to change all the dots in the URL into commas (laughs) just so that it would appear. And it's like the people are so desperately trying to get Google's attention. and, And Google or Facebook is so determined not to hire people to listen to what people want to say to them because otherwise there's no way you can get 100,000 users to one engineer ratio. Uh, you, just can't, you just can't have that kind of ratio and actually pay any attention uh, to, to human beings because see, it's going to be one out of a billion people that just want to talk to you about something. Yeah, there was a, an interesting Google, um, I didn't get to read it, but Matt Cutts had linked to it about just doing the statistics of like, say, you know, 0.5% of all your users actually need help with something that involves right. a human being in some way. You know, they can't yeah. be somehow, you know, just click through the fact or they need to be, they need to have their hand held for whatever reason, uh, whether it's valid yeah. or invalid. And the numbers just get really staggering really fast. Um, yeah. And I guess for us, it's, it's less, you know, we've built this well, system where we we have the users help each other as well as us. Like, I've said this right. many times, but I, I'm always amazed when I go on Meta and somebody from the community has ans- answered a question, like, much better than I could have about some way that our system works. 
and that's yeah. a very that's amazing to me. And I think Google has that, but I don't think that they do a very good job of cultivating community. Um, I think Microsoft is actually better at this. But I don't know. I, and Facebook certainly is not good at that either. I mean, where are the Facebook ambassadors? No. Where's the uh, right. where are the Google ambassadors? Where's the people that love this stuff that get support from the company? You know, I don't know. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Those are companies. I mean, those companies very much have a philosophy of, of like, we are putting on a show for the world. We are building a product that you are buying. Right? Like, there's something about that us and them mentality about those companies. And Facebook is like, behind the scenes, we're making this awesome thing. And you, in front of the scenes, will use it. It's very much like the Facebook is on stage and the users are in the audience. And, and you can't really, there's, there's no blending of those two things. Whereas um, with uh, um, Stack, obviously, it's, uh, it's a total, uh, um, uh, it, it's, it's more of a kind of a migration. You kind of work your way up. From being a user to actually working for the company. Um, random on the chat room says Google Plus has a lot of user ambassadors. I don't know what those are, but um, I'm guessing that Google Plus will try to be a little bit more social than that. Uh, well, it might, it might just mean spam. I'm not really clear. Um, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't what actually touched Google Plus, so I don't. I can't really comment on it. Really? No. Seriously? Not it's totally it. made for you made for you. There's a, that black bar on the top of all the websites that you go to. Uh, you know, there was another thing that people used to complain about endlessly, and I don't know if Google has addressed this, but one of the reasons that they're able to offer an office suite for, you know, $50 a year instead of whatever Microsoft charges, which is probably like $300 a year, I don't know the exact numbers, um, is that they, there's no support for it. So if you buy Google Docs or Google for my domain or whatever, all those, those sort of expensive versions to replace Microsoft Office, you then find that the professional support that you get as a paid customer of Google is pretty darn crappy. And I think Google is sort of waking up to the fact that most of the reason that Microsoft Office costs so much is that they provide pretty good support that's sort of expected by the enterprises. I don't know if Google is completely aware that, that that's what they... You can't just cheap out on the support because that's what the people are paying for in the organizations. Yeah. Uh, that's right and I guess the model of I mean it's difficult for me to talk about this because the whole model of QA is you know peers helping peers you're sort of right, enabling <laughs> everyone this whole while structure I is about building that it's never like a cousin of, versus them uh, every once in a while I'll meet a cousin and the cousin will be like hey so what are you doing I'm like that's a website for programmers they ask questions get answers and they're like so you, you answer questions I'm like, no, I don't, I don't answer the questions. They're like, yeah, but you hire people to answer the questions. They're like, no, no, they answer each other's questions. I'm like, well, what are you doing? And then they think that's really cool. They're like, oh, wow, you don't have to pay all these people to answer the questions. Just somebody else comes along. So what is, uh, what is our number of employees? I think it's about 45. Um, Alex, do you know how many employees we have? You just did the 46. Um, not, not nearly enough engineers. We need to start hiring some more engineers, darn it. If you're an engineer and you're listening to this podcast, we need to hire you because um, it's get, kind of getting kind of top-heavy with salespeople there. Uh, another question that came up is uh, freemium, but we don't. there's no plans for freemium. I mean, I made some comment on Twitter about freemium, freemium versus um, traditional, you know, the 37 signals thing where they're always on a soapbox about whatever it is about whatever thing they do is the correct thing for everyone to do. 
Yeah, mm. they insist that you start paying immediately. Right. And I don't know that that really works because I do think the cost of providing these services, I mean, look at the Facebook argument. I mean, it, it doesn't cost that much to provide these services. So the real cost of them I, is, is very, very low. So I it should at some uh, level trend towards zero for basically. I absolutely leaders. used to go with the 37 Signals model of charging. I mean, in 2001, when the dot com thing crashed, uh, and all of a sudden everybody said, look, we, we, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to make another product that we don't charge for. Uh, you know who was sort of famously said that? Ev, Ev Williams wrote a blog post called The End of Free. This was in 2000. And uh, this is Ev Williams, who's the creator of Twitter, although he's not in the company anymore. I don't think he's involved in Twitter anymore. I'm canceling and, uh, my paid Twitter account just because of that. I'm so indignant about this. <laughs> no more paid Twitter. He, he had a, a blog post called The End of Free. Um, and he was sort of a big blogger in the early days. His blog was at evhead.com. Um, before he became very quiet publicly. And uh, in the end of free, uh, which is no longer findable on the web as far as I know, he basically said, you know, the first dot-com era, 1995, everybody expected that everything on the Internet would be free because they were entering into a system that had been built by academics where all services on the Internet were assumed to be free. And once you got into that world, people would create these websites and they would just make them free because everything on the Internet is free. And in 2000, he basically said, you know what, that's over. Um, the, all these companies have failed. We can't have that anymore. And people are starting companies where from day one, they're charging everybody a little bit to try to make money and try to make good businesses. And of course, yes, then he built Twitter. So it was sort of a fake left, play right, or whatever the term is. So, um, uh, But now the way I see it is it's like you don't want any friction in growing the service to a large size. You want zero friction while you're growing. Once you get up to speed, you can add all kinds of stuff to that. It's just like if you had um, a gigantic uh, uh, tank in your front lawn and you pushed on it really, really hard, you could eventually get that tank rolling. And once it was rolling, it'd be awesome. You could attach all kinds of banners and flags to it and all kinds of nifty things to that tank once you got it rolling downhill. But while you're trying to get it rolling, you want it to weigh as little as possible. You don't want people sitting on the tank. You don't want all kinds of little gigas and attachments. And so I think the way to launch things these days, not everything, obviously, it depends, but a lot of things these days, including the kind of things that 37 Signals does, um, I believe that the way to launch them is to make them absolutely, totally free with a sort of promise that they'll always be free and get up to get get up to speed and get, get a big audience and then try to figure out how to, um, once you have the gigantic audience and you're a gigantic, powerful tank rolling downhill, try to figure out what things you want the tank to pull. And plus, from my perspective as a software developer, you know, the goal of building software is not to build these abstract toys that you can play with in your mind and just in your private sandbox. I mean, the goal is to build things that are getting used by real people for, for something productive and useful, ideally. I mean, yeah. the, the counter-argument to that is you're building, you know, the cheeseburger network, which I have no problem with the cheeseburger network, but... You it's know, hilarious. It, it, you know, it, it's entertainment, which is a different division of the mind. Um, but if you're, you're actually wanting to build a tool, you know, something that people live in like a house, you know, not a fun house, like a bouncy house. Like, for example, like what if you had decided I'm going to live in a bouncy house 24-7? You know, that would be weird, right? <laughs> also very impractical. Um, you want to live in a house that, that, that's functional, that, that is yeah. practical and 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 the architecture of the house and uh, you know the the craftsmanship of the house is something I find fascinating. That you know I love 
living on the Stack Exchange network. I mean, I've built fundamentally a house that I love to live in. I mean, I would go to those sites even if I had nothing to do with them uh, because I sort of handcrafted them to be a home that I would like to live in. And, you know, I'm happy to invite others in as well um, mm-hmm. as long as they sort of get the mission, which a lot of our users do, uh, of, you know, signal-to-noise and the other things we're very protective about. Um, but but to me, that's... To, to get people to... to to use the tool that you've built, a lot of times the easiest way is say, you know, we're not going to charge you. This isn't the kind of party where there's a cover at the door, you know. Uh, this is a, a party at my house, and uh, you're all invited, and, you know, hopefully we'll have some interesting conversations at this party, and, you know, something productive, useful artifacts will be generated. Um, and I think most tools that I would want to build would, would have the same mentality, and I think starting with, does this even work? Will people come to this party, right? Like, Forget the cover charge. <laughs> is this party any good? Yeah. <laughs> will people actually yeah. stay there of their own will? Especially, um, especially when there are those um, sort of uh, uh, um, magnitude things where, like, the party works, but only if there's 800 people there, or only if there's a good ratio of males to females, or only if, you know, every question gets answered within 15 minutes. Like, and in those cases, any kind of friction that you put on by charging people is going to kill you. Which, by the way, I heard a rumor... Uh, that that uh, experts exchange is going to switch to a freemium model. That's what they told me. We'll see. Well, didn't they already have some crazy model where you, if you participated have, enough, you had a free membership or something? Yes. Yes, and that turned out to work very very badly for them because the people who couldn't get their bosses to pay for their experts exchange account were um, actually in India and sometimes the slightly less qualified programmers, not because they were in India, but they just were. And, um, and so they were just sort of hammer away on experts exchange, writing crap answers in order to get that free account. So their actual their quality went down by, it's sort of a classic example of a perverse incentive. You think, oh, I know, we'll give free, free accounts to our best members. And then what you end up doing is having people who are actually breaking your site in order to get the free membership. They're typing bad content deliberately. Uh, yes. Something you well, that's not something planned. Law of that unintended consequences. Up. We should mention that Superuser had their uh, second sort of yearly contest uh, because Superuser is now two years old. Oh yeah, tell me, tell me about that contest. I was not paying attention. Well, the winners are up. You go to blog.superuser.com, um, and uh, it's it's a it's a list of. Uh, Sort of the common cast of characters that if you've been on Super User, you've seen these these very very experienced <laughs> users around the block before. <laughs> uh, but the, the way these contests are structured, it, we th- we think a lot about the stuff, and I was very impressed that the Super User community came up with this contest on their own because they tried to avoid perverse incentives. You know, of like, okay, how do we structure this contest so that people are kind of doing the right thing for the right reasons? Um, it's actually really easy to build a contest that gives you kind of the experts exchange thing you talked about, where people are doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, uh, because it's about the contest. I mean, it, the contest is there to in, to incentivize and, and make it a little bit more fun, but fundamentally, you should be there because you enjoy the topic, and you enjoy learning from your peers about the topic, and all the contest you know, rules... And directives should should focus on that. You know, how do we make sure that when people participate, that's why? Um, and you, it can't be too artificial, and it can't be too extrinsic. It has to be related yeah. to what we call intrinsic motivation, which is 
computers are fun. Like I love computers. I would build computers if nobody asked me to. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's the mentality of a lot of people on, on super users. We love computers. We love software. And that's why we're here. Um, level one prize, a t-shirt. Level two prize, $35 of official super users. Swag. Swag. Okay. Oh, we're also working uh, on some more super user swag because uh, they had asked us to come up with. We have T-shirts, of course, but given that yeah. super user is the second largest site in the network, pretty much by a fairly large margin, um, I'm very open to this. If you go to store.stackexchange.com, oh sorry, shop. Yeah. Eh, it's an alias, but it works. And then you look around, you can see some of the some of the stuff we have. We're gonna get a little bit more super user stuff in there. You can have there's so many possible. I, you, just the other day, I went into a university bookstore, and they have like an entire section with every possible kind of thing imprinted with the university logos. So the number of things that you can get our our logos printed on is absolutely insane. Like we should have plush toys. Plus, do we even well, have? Okay, that's a good. Do we have that's a good one plush? for the chat room. What would there be a plush yeah. toy of? And don't say Joel and don't say Jeff because that's just creepy, man. That is but very, like, what very would creepy. Plush. I don't get it. Like I, I'm with you, but what would be the plush? It, it would have be to be a plush unicorn a plush, for stack. For a little plush. Yeah, unicorn. Or it could be a little plush Buddha with Jeff's face. No, 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 no. Nothing with me. Because <laughs> hey, I heard you freaked out when someone made a bobblehead. I of did. You, man. That, yeah, somebody made a bobblehead of me, and it freaked me out in a very unsettling way. It was like right, not in the good know, way, was, like in the bad, yeah. please stop way. No, and the, oh my god, the children of Israel have built a golden calf kind of way. Yes. And you know, I'm, I'm with you on that, actually. I think that's a little bit weird. So I, I totally am <laughs> All right, so no, nothing personal. Yes, nothing uh, personal. Bacon, we have bacon. They have uh, talking bacon, unicorns. Oh, um, we should mention another cool thing. Oh, random, but a very funny image. Oh, Ask Chiefs. Oh. We could have an Ask Chiefs. We could have like a butler wearing a Stack Exchange t-shirt. That's sort of fun. Nice. Oh, we are working on uh, the geek badges. Can we talk about that? The, uh, the actual, yeah, let's talk about geek. The actual badges, I mean the kind that come out of a sewing machine. Those kind of badges, not the virtual kind. Uh, because if you go to nerd badges, is it nerd badges? Nerd? I have no nerd? idea what this is, what you're talking about at all. But I saw it coming across the... Uh, the email whilst I was uh, running around today. Nerdmerrickbadges.com? Here we go. So this, we actually are <gasps> working on, there's going to be Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange. Um, and I believe that one of them will be sold through Nerd Merit Badges. Uh, in other words, you'll have uh -huh. to have a full badge on, I believe, Stack Overflow to get it. Like they, it, it's, I guess it's kind of the honor system. They'll like look, ask for a link to see if you actually have it. <laughs> um, but that's very cool. A, We're very excited about that uh, because... I don't know why I just discovered this. This has been around for a little while, at least six months or so. And I just now I'm discovering this, but this is awesome. Uh, yeah, we should have all kinds of badges. We do yeah, have we badges, badges on the site. We could have badges for all of the badges. Maybe only the best ones. Well, right now we're just doing sort of the gold badge. Okay. Uh, as, as far as what's sold through Nerdmare badges. Funny. And then there will also be a stack It's a badge printing the... Yeah, there's a badge for print fixing your printer. There's a badge for um, bought this Bitcoin's badge with Bitcoin's badge. <laughs> you, have to, you have to buy this badge with Bitcoin's, and you get the badge for having actually been able to somehow get Bitcoin's to work. And I, I was asked to point out that they are Velcro-backed, so you don't actually have to sew them on. <laughs> 
But you can, and we encourage sewing them on if you really want to, but you can also uh, stick them on. Uh, since you mentioned Bitcoin, we should mention we have some new sites. I have very mixed feelings about Bitcoin. It's probably best if I just don't talk about that. <laughs> I'm not against it, Bitcoin. but I don't know. It weirds me out a little bit. Uh, well, the first problem we is have, that uh, they're going to run out of things to talk about. Oops. I'm oh. sort of losing Jeff. I'm, I'm afraid it's going to run. Drop the map. Uh, is that just hey my guys, internet connection? Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's just you, Joel. Uh, the connection's been getting worse okay. and worse. Um, I'm not sure okay. what to do that. I'm going to try an interesting alternative Wi-Fi connection. Let's just keep going, though. Okay. okay. And we'll, well, we're we'll edit this out site, a little I just want to mention the, the newest ones are DSP, Dignal Signal Processing. DSP.stackexchange. Oh, that sounds and good. That's going to be awesome. That's a, that's a field. That's a job that people have. That one's got to work. It is. It doesn't have a ton of questions yet. I'm a little concerned about. Uh, but Bitcoin is hugely popular. Uh, has a lot of questions for a 15-day-old site, actually. <laughs> uh, and also uh, French. We haven't really given French any props. I should also mention that we are working on a set of uh, minor enhancements for some of the language sites, uh, such as uh, 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 French and Japanese and, and so forth. Uh, we're not necessarily localizing it yet, but we're going to smooth some of the rough edges around. Like, for example, in French, did you know, Joel, well, whoever's listening at this point, since I don't know where Joel is, in French, it's actually legal to do, you're supposed to do space, then exclamation point at the end of a sentence. So in oh, French, yeah, yeah. Call, in, call in and question marks and put a space before them. Yeah, so it's like, this is my sentence, space, exclamation points. Uh, and we actually block that. <laughs> Because we have users on Stack Over, well, on the other sites that do this incorrectly, we'll put yeah. spaces before They're probably French people. title. And we're kind of protective of titles because we want the titles not to mm -hmm. suck. Like, it's kind of urgently important the titles to suck. Uh, so that's a rule that's going to have to be relaxed. And that's just an example of the kind of things we're going to do. It's really just minor tweaks. But we are listening. We do we do look at all the, the language-specific metas, and we think about there's some there's just assumptions we make about English that are kind of subtle not you know you must type everything in English but just the rules we use to process the data so we're we're still uh, working on that I think Joel's calling back oh Joel's I think calling he, back I, think, I don't know it was getting really interfering Joel can you hear us I think nope, he. Nope. I think he lost connection. Okay, um, that's fine. He's coming back. Ah, I'm back. Yay! Oh, good. Yay! I, uh, I just switched my Wi-Fi connection. That does sound better. Okay. Oh, it it should it should hold up a little better, I think. Oh, and also, um, linguistics, Joel. You oh, were is that, at is that beta. Uh, I think that's going to go today or tomorrow, real soon. All right, hurry up. Linguistics.stackexchange.com. No, sad panda. <laughs> well, not yet. How do they, it's not the second. I'm just mentioning it for. It's coming. How up. do they get the panda to ride that toy? That's pretty. That's pretty humorous. Um, okay, so linguistics is coming up real soon. Now, my dad is a professor of linguistics, and I'm sure he'll have a lot of fun with that site. Yeah, um, I apologize for the nom 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 sound. Told you soon. I'm eating a salad wrap, 
which is the veggie, veggie, veggie option available at the conference here. Um, it's a bunch of shredded vegetables wrapped up in a tortilla. Yes. So, Joel, another thing that we worked on recently is we did spend a little bit of time trying to improve the duplicate experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is unfortunately a very, very hard problem. <laughs> so I'm not going to promise anyone a rose garden because finding duplicates is... Let me give you an example. Like On Meta, all the time, I'll see something come up that I know has been asked before. I just know it. Yeah. Like I've seen it before. And the trick is that a lot of the time, they have almost zero words or even tags in common. Yeah, and it's just hard to remember where that thing was. The only reason I can connect this is because I have a human brain that just remembers that I saw the other one. And eventually I can find it, but it takes like five minutes, well not five minutes, like two minutes of just concerted searching on just everything I can think of to find these two, this, this, this duplicate that's supposed to be a duplicate of. <laughs> that's um that that uh, that's that experience which you may remember it called the world before Google. That's what Alta yeah. Vista was like. I realized you know what Alta Vista was. I, I, I was just thinking about this the other day. What the world was like before Google, and this is just t- speaking to people's expectations. It's not like people would go to search engines in the days before Google and type the same kind of queries as they type into Google and expect to and just fail to find a result. It's like they didn't even bother using search engine. You used a search engine if you were like, hmm, I wonder what the URL of Microsoft's website is. And you would type, you know, Microsoft into the search engine, and you'd get all kinds of links, and you'd go follow them, hoping to find a link to a link to a link that eventually got you to the right place. But just just actually, like, finding uh, a page was... uh, um, it, 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 It wasn't that you were trying to find an answer so much, as, like, if you're lucky, you could find, you know, where... Continental Airlines had put their website on Alta Vista, but usually you couldn't. Yeah, the world before search is kind of hard to remember because. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I mean, even on my, I was just complaining. Um, well, actually, I was complaining about Android phones, um, but really, iPhones have the same problem. When when you come down, when it's time to select an application, apparently on Android, there's a separate screen you go to. It's like, okay, first you say, I want to pick an app, and then there's like what I call the sea of icons on a background problem. Uh, and I have a little bit of beef with this because I feel like a bunch yeah. of icons on a background is like everybody's mother's computer, right? <laughs> like, all, this is the design it's all the ethos of the that, iPhone. We're going to create like, a situation which is just like when your parents <laughs> use your computer and they have a bunch yeah. of icons on the desktop. You know, it's overflowing with icons. Just but you know what it all, it's all? Like, like, it's like sign up for AOL and it's like click here to buy more inkjet ink, or like they bought a printer and it put five icons on their desktop. Exactly. Exactly. So like this is viewed as like good UI, and I actually don't think it is, because on my iPhone, like I guess you can make an argument, it's kind of like, you know, phones have a quick dial, like the six people, like your top five, the the people that you talk to the most, I get that, that's fine, you could have a top five there, but generally when I'm digging into libraries, like I want to run an app I haven't run in a while, like I'm not going (laughs) to scroll through every page, I'm not going to like visually browse is really painful. Like, I'm going to search. I'm going to go to the search page, type in the first few characters. Like, this ends up being search, even on my phone, is the preferred navigation mechanism. Like, my phone has a big enough universe inside it already. Right. Like, search is kind of the preferred way to navigate now on it. As long as 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 it works. Yeah, sure. It has to work. That's that's a given. (laughs) But I'm just surprised that... 
I, I just keep coming back to search as like the only metaphor that really works. And you know those options dialogue in software, Joel? Like you go to the uh, options yes. dialog and I don't know Microsoft Word, pick anything. This is a super right. complicated dialog. How many options are in Microsoft Word? A thousand? Yeah, it's it's usually so, I usually call it a, like a, a database of all the failures of the designers of the product to actually make a decision about something when you have an options page. Right, and and I feel bad about this because I'd actually mocked this. There was a there was a software product called Toad, uh, which is like a an Oracle mm, right. Like, Basically, it's like SQL super. Enterprise Manager, yeah, yeah. And when you went to Options and Toad, first it took forever to bring up the Options dialog because they had bad software or something, but it was loading obviously a giant XML file of all the options probably in the background. But once yeah. you got the dialog up, it, there were so many tabs and so many options that at the bottom it's like search for the option you want. And I was like, oh, how stupid! This is how dumb <laughs> this dialog is. This dialog is <laughs> you know. so badly designed that it requires search. <laughs> but now I realize. That they were ahead of their time. I think this is the only. Yeah. Eventually, all software is going to be so complicated that you're going to have to have a search dialog to change the options. Unless you're building friggin' Notepad or like you know a 37 Signals product where there's like two options, there's like two things you can even do in it. Um, search is really the preferred way to find stuff. Like even Joel, what is your opinion about the ribbon? There was a lot of bitching on the internet about Windows 8 is going to use more of the ribbon metaphor for like Windows Explorer yeah. and stuff. I, you like, know what? That I love reminds the, me of. I think the ribbon is fantastic, but you have a you, very large monitor. Well, okay, there's a couple things here. Like, I think they kind of have the right thing, but it didn't quite work out. There's a lot of good ideas in the ribbon uh, that are theoretically good ideas, but I don't think they really work out the right way. So, for example, there's one good idea, which is every tool shouldn't be the same size, and that's something that uh, every user interface designer has read. Um, the the uh, what's that book called? Poet, The Psychology of Everyday Things, or The Design of Everyday Things. Same book, but Don Norman. Everybody's read that. And in that book, he has an example of a uh, clock radio that the designers of this clock radio have decided to make every button the same size. And the reason they made every button the same size is because it looks nice. But having the snooze button be the same size as the you know delete all my alarm clock settings button, at, which is also the same size as the raise the volume or lower the volume button, and they're all next to each other in a perfect row, um, makes it harder to use. And uh, so, you know, Don Norman was basically showing us, look, you, you have to, in order to make something easy to remember what things do and easy to operate, you want to have the steering wheel be really, really large, and the brake be a small thing in the middle, and the radio be over to the side, and everything should be a different size so that you get lots of cues from the environment which button to grab for. So uh, they obviously took that to heart when they designed the ribbon. And that makes sense. The next thing they said was the ribbon should have the most important stuff on it. And that kind of makes sense, I guess, uh, in, in order, you know, in some kind of logical groupings. Uh, well, they actually instrumented. But, well, hold on. That's correct. Let me just yeah, interject. Yeah, yeah. They instrumented Office like 2003. They had click data. They could tell you, like, which features were actually getting used. And I thought that was amazing. I mean, this is like, this is science, right? That's, that's why I don't get it, people that bitch about the ribbons. Like, a lot uh, of the ribbon, even if you don't like it, is really based on science, like true user interface science. No, it's actually not. It's based on historical usage of the previous version of the product. And the trouble is that these things become self-fulfilling prophecies. So you might say, oh, we have instrumented the finder and we've discovered that the number two most common thing is for people to copy files. But maybe they copy files with a mouse all the time or with a keyboard. They never copy files with the ribbon or the, or the toolbar. Or maybe they would use this feature way more often if you hadn't buried it five levels deep in a menu. And so maybe that should be on the ribbon, right? Like, just because somebody isn't using something doesn't mean it's not going to be important in the next version. 
maybe um, uh, you know the next version of Windows, it'll be extremely important to be able to I don't know unzip a file or who knows you know people's needs may change. So let's say for example adding a, adding a picture to Facebook would be probably what you know 10% of people's computer usage when Windows 8 is shipping is going to be adding pictures to Facebook that you uploaded from your camera. Where's the Facebook button on the ribbon? Well, that got 0% usage, so it's scientifically incorrect to put that button on the... In other words, you, you, you make self-fulfilling prophecies if you're backwards looking at your uh, usage stats. So that's my first complaint. Second complaint about the ribbon, which is a s slightly smaller one, is that um, the, the, the Windows ribbon, and I don't know if they've fixed this, but the Office ribbon certainly has this bizarre tendency to try to shrink adaptively. So as you narrow the window, it removes buttons, and the buttons that it removes are kind of at random. It removes the least popular buttons. It doesn't just make it so that you would have to scroll. And as a result, if you're using a laptop, if you're using anything other than a gigantic 30-inch monitor, um, about half the time you're looking at the ribbon, it's showing you a different set of buttons, a randomly slightly different set of buttons. And you're looking for that button, you're like, I know... This happens to me in Word on the Mac all the time. Like, there, there's got to be an insert footnote button. I could have sworn it was right there, or the button for um, highlighting text. It's like that. Well, that's just not the most common thing, so we've hidden it until you make your window wider. And that unpredictable dropping out of buttons drives me crazy because it essentially makes it a user interface that's kind of dancing under you. Remember those old jokes that people used to do where there'd be a web page would come up and it'd say click OK and there'd be an OK button. And as soon as you move your mouse there, the OK button would move somewhere else. So that's kind of what I feel uh, that the, uh, okay, end of rant. That's my end of complaining about the ribbon. In general, like, you know, there's good stuff there and there's good design stuff there uh, that makes a lot of sense. But sometimes they sort of snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory by, for example, deciding that they should just randomly hide buttons, not randomly, but hide buttons wherever they may be based on usage as you shrink the window rather than just requiring you to scroll the toolbar. Well, that's all true, and I think you were going someplace that I'm going I'm to take us. Um, but I think the way you have to look at this is the ribbon has a flaw, which is basically search, which I posted two links in the chat room that are about. Really, this comes back to my argument that once you have enough options, search is the only thing that even makes friggin' sense anymore. Like, it just stops making sense that you even try to predict what users yeah. are going to try to do and just put, like, say, the top five things most people do and then have an awesome search, right? Yeah. Um, and they've resisted this, sadly. There was a plugin for Office 2007 uh, that did search. Like, you would type in, I want to put a picture in my Word documents. You would type P-I-C-T-U-R, or just pick. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you get insert picture, copy his picture, font color, insert clipboard, compress pictures. I mean, this is all the picture stuff, right? This is exactly what you wanted, Joel. Really, this is exactly yeah. what you wanted to do. That, and you don't uh, have to hunt through ten different, you know, ribbon tabs to, to figure that out. But for some reason, they resisted that. Like, they... I don't know if they didn't support that plugin or killed it or what, but to me that was like the major missing piece. Like I like the ribbon a lot. There are two places search. where they have that uh, that search. There are two surprising places where they have that search. One is um, on the latest versions of the Macintosh operating system. Um, which do you ever use Macs, Jeff? Uh, not really, but okay. So the, use, the help yeah. menu now. If you pull down the help menu on any application on uh, on the Mac the first thing on the help menu is search. And it searches two things. It searches the menus and it searches the help file. So if you click help, the search box immediately appears and it is actually searching the menus of that application. So that's kind of neat. And um, the other example I can think of is Windows 7 for the control panel. 
they added a whole bunch of, I don't know what these things are called in Windows land, but there's a whole bunch of sentences that are like, manage physical disks on my computer. And if you click the start menu and start typing disk, those sentences appear on Windows 7 uh, that you can click on. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, pretty much everybody who's not, yeah. I guess, someone's parents <laughs> pretty yeah. much launches apps that way. So, like, there's a bunch of people in the chat room going, I launch apps this way, too. And, and I agree. Like, if I want to launch yeah. Notepad, I don't go go to my desktop, look for the Notepad icon, I mean, or navigate a drop-down right. menu even worse. I type N-O-T, and I press Enter, right? <laughs> so, I, I think search, I don't know. What I'm saying is, yeah, search yeah. is a metaphor. It's really hard to avoid. How did we get there? We got there because we were talking about Meta and a lot of dupes showing up on Meta, that Stack Exchange. And so there's some it was about de- finding de- stuff, de- and that de- sort de-duping. of led into this. Now, yeah. one thing about the ribbon I do want to point out, that even without search, I do think it's better because I think drop-down menus are a canker sore. Like, I think drop-down menus have ridiculously bad usability. Like Every time I have to go to a drop-down menu to do something, I feel like I'm punishing myself because <laughs> they hide a yeah. lot of stuff. And they're yeah. really hard to, like, get the surface area of. Like, where in the menu am I? When I click this option, and it doesn't do what I want, then I have to go all the way back up to the top and re-click a bunch of stuff. Like, it was sort of meant to be like a table of contents for the app when it was first designed. It wasn't – I don't think it was ever the primary way you did things. Maybe the very beginning of Macintosh. But, but it was sort Mac, of like there's – Still, a lot of people go back to, oh, I love my drop-down menus. And I'm like, that's yeah. crazy. Drop-down menus are <laughs> awful. I mean, one they're of the reasons the web is so good. One of the reasons the web is so good is because there's yeah. almost no drop-down menus. And I know dumb developers have brought stupid drop-down menus back, and sometimes they're unavoidable. But hey, they're all over a Stack Overflow. <laughs> we got a drop-down menu. We got drop-down menus all over the top bar. Yeah, we got but the, yeah, only the when we collider. have to. I mean, when you start with the premise of like Windows icons, mouse pointer, right? Like yeah. menus, like WIMP, like that's a core part of the design. On the web, the core part of the design is basically hyperlinks in the back button. You yeah, know, that's the yeah, core yeah. design. Yeah. When you start with okay, we'll start with the drop-down menu. It's you're kind of already going in the wrong direction, in my opinion. Like, so what's the, the new meta? Love the Tell ribbon the is because I hate drop-down menus so much, and I think they're really dangerous and just bad UI at this point. What's the new? Uh, what's the new thing you were talking about? There's a new deduplication feature. And oh, so, so getting back to deduplication. So if you, you have closed privileges on any Stack Exchange site, um, uh-huh. go ahead and go to uh, a question. Click close. All right, uh, I'm going to close. Pick something that's in a semi-popular tag. Like I'll pick some question that I asked. Um, uh, I'm going to do it on Stack Overflow. Click close. Then, okay. then click exact duplicate. And what happens is normally this was a dialog that says. You know, type in a question URL. Like this was the entire dialogue. Oh, literally. Okay. A, an input box, <laughs> and you would type in the duplicate because we had kind of punted on the idea of this is so hard that we're like, okay, users just know what duplicates are, things are duplicates of, which is really true. I mean, in aggregate, <laughs> our users are amazing at remembering that. I remember seeing this a year ago. And they will go find it, and they will mark it as duplicate. I mean, they do this amazing thing where they produce the correct answer. It's like the God algorithm. God knows the correct answer, so you just ask God, and you get the correct answer. Uh, <laughs> but it's also not a very helpful dialogue. So now what we do is when you click close and then duplicate, we try to predict, okay, within this t- these tags, 
Like, mm-hmm. what else has been closed as duplicate a lot? Like, what what other common duplicate targets are there in this tag? Okay? And on so meta, we have these two tags. Um, and then also, it's we not, collect, of course, any links that are in the question. Any... Okay. Uh, yeah. Any links that are in the question, and that's what's called the linked questions. And if, they're, sure. they, if, they have dupl- if they've been a duplicate target, they'll be listed. Uh, the related questions... So the related questions are built based on the body, title, and tags of the question itself, trying to find you know related questions that are similar to the one that you're looking at on your screen. We also walk that list and look for, again, the same metric of it, how many votes does it have, and also how many times has this been a closed target in the past. So the, the more times you close something, uh, as long as it shows up on related and linked, um, or is, is otherwise linked in the post, then it'll kind of show up in this dialog as a pre-selected item. Now, a lot of the time, this isn't correct, because this is a hard problem. Um, again, because the issue is, like, what if you use totally different words and tags? And this is actually shockingly common. Um, I, I've mentioned this on many podcasts, but every time it amazes me that people can come in and ask exactly the same question with nothing in common. I mean, it blows my mind. It's like there's so many ways to use language that you need probably, I would say at a minimum, to get coverage on a true duplicate question, I would say four is like the minimum number of questions you need on a topic. Just because mm-hmm. of the natural variance in the way people type and the way they think, four would be a reasonable minimum for having good duplicate coverage on a question. Yeah, depending on yeah, like certain types of things where people know the word, or that everybody just sort of agrees that should be the word. You may not have as many, but the ones where like nobody knows what the thing is called, there's always like is it a combo box or a drop-down or a drop-down list box. You just kind of want to have all seven of those versions. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're improving it. We're doing the best we can. For those of you that have closed privileges, uh, please do go to close. Uh, you don't have to do this, obviously. This is just for examining the features. Click close and yes. click uh, as duplicate and sort of look at what we're proposing. And think about ways to improve that. Like, how would you actually find this? If there's some pet duplicate you want to be on that list, how would you make that connection between those two posts? What, what do <laughs> they have in common? <laughs> That's really what we need to uh, figure out. So, you know, we, we've, we've done the best we can for now. We're making some progress on it. Uh, cool. But it's, it's very much an ongoing thing. This will take years. Um, okay, we're sort of running low on time. Any other uh, massive interesting news? We have a the, the number of sites that we're creating is seems to have gone up. The pace at which we're creating new sites through the Area 51 process seems to have increased again. Well, I think we're doing a better job of advertising the uh, proposals. Um, uh, before we were advertising sort of every proposal. Now we're just that advertising ran. the ones that close, close ish, right. like fifty percent or higher. I think that helped yeah. a lot. That did. That did. Uh, that was smart. Uh, but upcoming, oh, I forgot, theoretical physics also went through. So now we're going to have potentially two physics sites, kind of like yeah. we do with math. Although math, there are two uh, math sites, yeah. Yeah, you have the graduate level math, and then you have the everything else. And it looks like we're, we may have that divide for physics, depending on how well that site does. It makes um, sense, actually, surprisingly. There is a, there's very little overlap between what somebody who's a university slash researcher in a field talks about and what is actually taught in the undergraduate curriculum for that field. It's like the difference between computer science and computer engineering. Frankly, there's almost nothing that you learn in college in computer science that 
corresponds to anything that we do as programmers working full time. And they're just different fields. Yeah. So we'll see if that divide makes sense. I mean, it, it appears to be what I would call a natural divide. Like, I, a lot of things, sometimes <laughs> things happen on our network, and I, and I view them as uh, the natural order, the natural state of things. Like, this is the way <laughs> human beings work. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering if this graduate versus everything else is the correct compartmentalization of the topic. You know, because the people who are really serious, Something's, like the way yeah. we've described mathoverflow.net, or is it .com, mathoverflow.com, is uh, it's for questions you would ask your math professor that your math professor does not know the answer to. <laughs> like, right. your math professor would then have to ask another math professor, uh, and they would have to discuss and figure out this, yeah. this question. Definitely. Mathoverflow.net is for things that the average math person in the math field, the average person in the math field would not know. Which is interesting. I mean, I think that's how advanced it is. <laughs> yeah, and the way we group communities is, you know, one of the rules we, we use is to determine, does this content belong on the site? Is would you be offended to see this question on your site? And I think <laughs> for these graduate people that are doing math at this very high level, they actually would be offended if, you know, a complicated <laughs> college-level math problem appeared on their site. Because yeah, the and that's... A, yeah. They always get the certain things that the, they always get hit up with. The, the amateurs go in there and they're like, oh, I'm going to ask if 0.999999999999 if that continuing fraction is equal to 1. And it, that's just really, really boring to math people. <laughs> you know? they're like, they, right. they'll, they, they'll talk about that once and then they never want to talk about it ever again because it's just not that interesting. So one final thing before we go. Uh, Sam had brought up much earlier in the, in the chat about this idea of regional stack exchanges, like if there oh, yeah. was a New York that stack exchange. Yeah, we we had a uh, lot of proposals for that in the in the one days. I I don't I I'm not entirely sure that would work because the first thing that leaps to mind is like okay, what's the topic? I mean, the topic can't be just New York. I mean, that's kind of a very very broad topic. Like, what's yeah. really bringing these people together? Um, right. And you've got to realize the internet is really good at tearing down locality. A lot of the reasons you're on the internet is because, hey, I live in – we always pick on uh, Iowa. <laughs> I live in Iowa. Yeah. You know, I don't have a lot of people that have a 10,000-piece Yu-Gi-Oh! collection or whatever. But you know, I love Yu-Gi-Oh! more than anyone I know in the entire world. So you turn to the internet, and I've called this sort of the internet as California, where one of the things I love about California, and I'm sure this is true of a lot of other places, but I'm just using it as an example, is – you can let your freak flag fly. Whatever it is you're into, there are other people that will be as into it as you. Like maybe even beyond <laughs> the level that you're into it. And the internet has completely done away with that because the internet is the ultimate let your freak flag fly environment. <laughs> so the reason you turn to the internet is because you're trying to get rid of locality. You're saying the interest that I have completely transcends the locality. That, you know, I, I can't get enough people near me that, that love this thing as much as I do. Okay, and well, I totally disagree with you. That's ridiculous. For example, <laughs> just the other day, we were having a big old hurricane in New York that um, totally, totally drenched, absolutely drenched all the everything bagels. And uh, uh, I, 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 we, we have a house that's outside of New York a couple of hours in a town called Sagaponic, which was also sort of hit by the hurricane. And I was really wondering, like, did 
since I was in New York, I was really wondering like how much damage was done by this hurricane in Sagaponic, and I was looking for very, very local, specific information, and Sagaponic is not big enough to have a newspaper. There are a couple of weekly newspapers out there in East Hampton and Southampton and Sag, Sag Harbor, but the weekly newspapers, you know, update their website once a week. <laughs> there is a blog, the blog uh, called Curbed Hamptons. They shut down. <laughs> they were like, all right, we're shutting down for the earthquake. There was just no way to get any kind of information about what was going on in that locality. So I, I, I do kind of believe sometimes people turn to the Internet because they need a very specific piece of information. I need to know when the Caltrain from San Francisco to Palo Alto is leaving at 4 p.m. to add. I need that exact piece of information. And it's very local information, and that's what the Internet... The Internet, I mean, yeah, sure, it's awesome. You could take the Israeli perspective that the Internet is for people from Belgium to, to, to go to bars with people who are in Brazil at the same time, and they can sing and dance together with people that are on a different continent altogether, and isn't that amazing? And that's, uh, you know, that's one thing you do. But on the other hand... Uh, the, the, I think hyperlocal is super important as well. And it's just another thing. It's another reason we might have the internet. And I think the only reason we haven't had it yet on Stack Exchange is a lack of critical mass. Like if we really had Stack Exchange at critical mass, then a Q&A about Cedar Rapids might be a very valuable thing for people in Cedar Rapids. But wait a minute. Isn't this exactly the problem that Facebook, if you got rid of all the stupid games and the poking and the ridiculous stuff, isn't this exactly what Facebook should be good at? I, I, I agree that it's not really doing that, but it should. Because people, okay, fine, they shut down this, this blog that they had. Nobody's going to shut yeah. down their Facebooks, right? Because that's how they stay connected to people that are close to them, right? That's and true. I guess you would related. have to know people. <laughs> and yeah, you have to know people in your town then. But that's not going to get you an answer to, uh, you know, when is the Caltrain leaving? I don't know. There's something about that, though, that, that strikes me. as like there is a little bit of a map there with what they could be doing, this hyper-local thing that you're talking about. It's, it's about local connections to local people. Yeah. Local is actually it's, it's something. It's just a different problem. It's just not really what we're designed to do. I'm, I'm not saying it couldn't work, but like that was never really on the books for us. Like The problem we were trying to solve? was not really that. So for, for us that, to launch yeah. a site like New York to Sex Chains, that's not, we could, but it's like not... New York might work, but I'll tell you what, Cedar Rapids is not going to work because there are only seven Cedar Rapids wonks in the whole world, right? There's a lady in the Cedar Rapids Historical Society who loves talking about Cedar Rapids all the time. There's the receptionist at the Cedar Rapids City Hall who handles parking questions and stuff like that and has been told to go on to cedarrapids.stackexchange.com, make sure that people are getting answers to their parking ticket questions. But there are no real, like, oh, my God, I love Cedar Rapids so much, I need to spend every spare minute on the Cedar Rapids website asking questions and getting answers about Cedar Rapids, I think. I'm just thinking of, I don't really know anything about Cedar Rapids, but I'm thinking of that show uh, Parks and Recreation with Amy Poehler. Just you, know, you know who we should have on at some point is, um, is uh, Rich Screnta, because Rich Screnta started with this, this exactly – the problem he's, he was trying to solve at Topics.com was hyper-local uh -huh. news, like exactly what you're describing. Like literally to a T, it is exactly what you're describing. Uh -huh. That is the uh -huh. problem. Now he's moved on, and now they're doing um, uh, you know, a search engine. Uh, uh, Blecko.com. Blecko, yeah. But that topics.com is hyperlocal news. I think, yeah, and Blecko also has sort of hyperlocal as one of the things that it does, right? Is you could, you could set up a, a Cedar Rapids search engine on Blecko using the slash tags. So he hasn't right. gone straight far from that idea. He just, I think what he did is he stopped thinking of local as being only a geography and started thinking, well, well programming is kind of local too. Fortran yeah. is no, a very I think it's a very interesting problem. I mean, I, I, 
I'm, I'm sympathetic because you may remember a long time ago somebody asked us about the uh, there's this mailing list called the Berkeley Parents mailing list. Yeah, which yeah, is you're amazingly about. good. And Kevin Dente, who's a friend of mine, had asked me. He's like, "Well, how would we build, you know, Berkeley Stack Exchange?" And I had to give him basically the same answer, which is like, "I love what they do, um, and and I agree their software is horrible, but yeah. it's just not the problem that we set out to solve. So it would be contortionism. Like for us to try to solve that problem <laughs> would be mm, twisting things around in, in in ways that they just weren't built to do, and and that makes me a little nervous, you know." I mean, we already do some of that, Joel. Like, we have, we've launched sites that I was like, "Whoa, I don't know if we even want this site on our network." What was the one? Oh, Christianity. We've been talking about Christianity. Well, not just that, but we've launched a number of sites that I was like, "I don't know about this site." So we're doing experiments. They're just not that experiment, right? You know, unless it comes up in Area Fifty One, like we, you know, we can't do it, right? I mean, that's yeah, yeah. That's definitely the lesson. And I think that um, things like New York and San Francisco will come up, and I think they might eventually work. All right, we're, at, we're totally out of time. I have to go backstage okay. now. Um, those of you that are listening to the live uh, chat, if you're interested, uh, if you go to TechCrunch, uh, what is it, techcrunch.com slash disrupt, uh, you can actually watch the TechCrunch Disrupt Conference live on the Internet. And at about 2.30, maybe around, probably they, they tend to run late, um, you'll see me uh, launching a new product. Uh, a new Fog Creek product, um, which is going to be awesome. And uh, unfortunately, not a lot to talk about it until we actually do the launch. So that's where I'm going to go backstage right now and rehearse a few times. In the meantime, awesome. uh, Producer Alex, Good do luck. we have any guests already lined up for Is John Sheehan next week, right? John Sheehan from uh, Twilio, the chief super evangelist of Twilio, will be on the podcast. And who this week? I can't hear you because I got like two headsets. Oh, yeah. John Syracuse from Ars Techna who wrote that amazing review of Apple Lion. It was like 900-page in-depth review of every single bit in the source code of Apple Lion was covered by that review. So that's, um, he's going to be on in two weeks' time. And I'll see you next week. Yep. See you next week.